Um, today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. Um, I'll be reading out of the ESV. You could either follow along in your own Bibles or the screen right above me. Um, verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, and have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, and you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the reading of God's word. Yeah, all right, all right we'll, we'll move on. All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church. For those that are new or visiting, my name is Jay. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, really excited to have you guys join with us today in our Sunday service. Um, now, one of the fascinating things about culture is just how quickly a catalyst can change culture and the perception and practices that we have about certain festivals and holidays or, or even just the way we think, right? Uh, I learned recently the origins of how Christmas became a ho the holiday as we know it, and it's uh, rather fascinating. So as early as the 1920s, uh, Christmas was not the global holiday uh, that it is today. So even within different regions of the United States, um, there was differences in how people celebrated uh, Christmas. So depending on your religion or depending on your denomination or even just depending on uh, the culture that you grew up in, Christmas was a, a very kind of a niche thing that people celebrated. Now, uh, the holiday um, had more focus on, you know, kind of the religious re uh, reality of it, uh, the, mean, the, the birth of Jesus. But in the United States, the, the, uh, the religious holiday that was kind of looked upon as kind of like the major holiday was actually Easter. You know, the, the idea was, yeah, everyone is born, but only one person has died and rose again from the dead. So Easter was rightfully so uh, the main focus of American religious holidays. Now, uh, one sociology professor, uh, he attributes the change of Christmas as kind of a global phenomenon to uh, Coca-Cola. Crazy, all right? I, I looked it up, so it was actually real. So around the 1920s, and especially in the 1930s, uh, Coca-Cola, they were looking at their sales numbers, and they realized that a lot of their sales were happening in the summer, um, spring, and then kind of in the fall, but no one was drinking Coca-Cola in the winter. And, and they were kind of wondering why, maybe because of the cold weather or whatnot. But, um, so one of the, the, the marketing department, they decided to kind of create this, um, a, you know, like a, a spokesperson for like, their winter sales. And you know, this, the artist by the name of, um, I forgot his name, some, it's somewhere here in my notes, but I can't find it, okay? But the artist, uh, they, he created this Santa Claus as we know it today, um, wearing a red suit, you know, chubby, jolly, rosy cheeks, beard, you know, kind of like this very nurturing grandpa. And then the, whole, the entire idea of Christmas as a time where we celebrate by uh, sending each other gifts and, you know, kind of a family time, it really started from the Coca-Cola campaign. And Coca-Cola also saw their sales go up. And now all, all, over, all over the world, we celebrate Christmas as a commercial holiday where we buy a lot of things, and we buy things for each other, we go on vacations, we, we hang out with friends and family, and it's really kind of only happened the last 100 years. And, and, you know, I mean, 
it's, it's only one generation, right? There's probably still people who were born in the 30s that are still alive today, just barely, you know? So the fact that culture can change that quickly, we, then, then we have to ask ourselves the question, what about a culture within a church that has been in existence for over 2,000 years? How easily as, as, as humans can we kind of lose sight of the real meaning of something? Or how, how, how can it so easily just change from one phenomenon to another? And so now as we read this passage here in, uh, in Matthew, we saw the people of Israel um, going with the flow of, of a very religious holiday in their religion. And we see Jesus react to the fact that they have lost the very meaning of what they were celebrating and instead have turned the Passover into a commercial festival where people can profit and just kind of check off the box of their religious duties. So as we conclude our sermon series through the Ecclesia, the, the idea of what does it mean to be the church, the called out people of God, uh, we're going to look at this idea of the temple and Jesus' reaction to the temple and see really just the righteous anger of Jesus at the state of the, the people of Israel. Then we, I think we're going to look at uh, just the, our own conditions. How can we examine our own condition? Uh, what, what, what does it really kind of teach us about our own hearts? And lastly, we're going to look at the fulfillment of God's temple. How will we, the church, God's fulfillment of his temple, and how is Jesus the ultimate fulfillment of the temple of God? So first of all, one important detail that is not mentioned in Matthew uh, is that, uh, you know, that we get from John's account is that Jesus' encounter at this temple occurs during the Passover festival. So for those that may not be familiar, the Passover festival is one of the most, if not the most important festival for the Jewish people. This is a time when the people of Israel celebrate and remember the mighty act of God in freeing them from slavery from the land of Egypt. And the reason why it's called the Passover is because the final plague for the Egyptians was that, was that God would send the angel of death and every firstborn male of the Egyptian people would die. And the only way to kind of differentiate between the Egyptians and the Israelites was that God gave Moses the instruction that for the people of Israel that they would sacrifice a lamb, that they would paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house so that when the spirit of the, uh, the angel of death would hover over the land, that they would pass over any household that had lamb's blood painted on the doorpost. That's why it's called the Passover. And so for the people of Israel, they would gather uh, at the temple. They would offer their sacrifice. They would eat a family meal together, remembering the great work that God did in freeing them from slavery into freedom. So now during this time in this festival, not only were the people pilgrimaging all the way into Jerusalem, into the temple, but they also had to go there to pay a temple tax. Now, a, a lot of historians believe that during this time that, the, uh, that Jerusalem can uh, house about 250,000 people. But during the Passover festival, there would be about uh, two to three million people coming into the city because of the Passover festival. And it had to, there was no online giving back then, right? There was, you couldn't mail in your tax. You had to go there in person. And the people of Israel, every male of a certain age, had to pay the temple tax. So there are two main, uh, main things that had to be accomplished in the Passover for a Jewish person and a Jewish family. Number one, they had to offer the right, proper sacrifice. And two, every male of a certain age had to pay the temple tax. Now, what we see from uh, Jesus' uh, you know, conversations and the Gospels, we see that Jesus had nothing against paying the temple tax. Uh, this is a passage later in Matthew. He says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take it 
uh, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find the shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is, this is a wild story, right? Jesus has to pay the temple tax. He tells his disciples, hey, go fishing. The first fish you catch, open its mouth, and there will be a shekel there. Use that shekel and uh, pay the temple tax for me and you, you know? Crazy. Like, he literally had a fish swallow a shekel, you know, and then he caught, you know what I mean? Like, that's wild, right? So Jesus had no problems about paying the temple tax. But the reality and what was going on here in the temple is that the religious leaders and those that are operating this system, they were doing it for their own profit and their own gain. And not only that, because of the fact that this system and this ritual and these, and these proper procedures have been, been practiced over hundreds and hundreds of years, the people have really lost the meaning of what it was to celebrate and remember the Passover. So now, just to kind of give you a glimpse of what's going on here, imagine we had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and imagine you're coming from a far distance, uh, and imagine that you aren't, you aren't that well off. Uh, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to make sure that you have money to pay the temple tax. And number two, you want to make sure that you have an animal to sacrifice. And depending upon your economic scale, you were either required to offer a dove for those that are poor, uh, a, a goat or a lamb or, or a cow for those that are uh, more well off. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I go to the movies and some movie theaters allow it, or if I go to like an amusement park, I want to bring my own food. Why? Because it's so much more expensive if you buy food there, right? Same case with a temple. Now, the thing is, is that the people who were, offer, uh, who were selling the animals for sacrifice and the religious leaders that would deem as an animal, whether it was clean or unclean, were the same group of people. So now, if you're a pilgrim and you're coming from a long distance and you brought your own goat, um, there's, there's a chance that you would bring the goat and they would be like, you know what, this goat is not acceptable for sacrifice for it is blemished, it is unclean. And you would have to just kind of keep that goat around and then you'd have to buy a separate goat from the very people who deemed your goat unclean. So it was kind of a, a messed up system, right? And for the dove, which is the cheapest animal that you can purchase, uh, outside of the temple walls, it, it costs a certain amount, but when you buy it within the temple walls during the Passover, the cost was 50 times greater. So you see kind of the injustice that's going on here. You know, like, if, and I totally get it. If I was in charge of that, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that every animal that is brought outside of these walls is unclean. You have to buy from me, right? And there's systems like that here that we experience as well, right? And not only that, but the money changers, if you, to, to pay the temple tax meant that you had to pay with a certain temple token. You couldn't just come in and bring like your Roman, your Roman coins or, or your Turkish coins or, you know, like, you know, there's a Roman empire. They had a lot of different denominations as well. You had to exchange your money for the temple token. And the reason for it wasn't bad. They wanted to make sure that the, the money was clean. Uh, they wanted to make sure that there were no, un, uh, you know, graven images on the coin. Like they didn't want to offer, you know, idolized uh, coins for, you know, to God. So everyone had to do so. But the kicker was this, in order to exchange your money, they charge you a 6% change rate. Okay? If you travel, you understand this. You know, there's, there's always going to be a charge. But on top of that, you know, if you guys ever have exchanged money at the airport or you know, at a different country, you'll never have exact change from one denomination to another. You bring a dollar, and you're going to either get back like a dollar and 25 cents in the other currency. Like, you know, you know, it's never like a bill-to-bill -bill exchange because the denominations are different. And obviously, they know that. So they also charge an extra 6% if you did not have exact change, which is 
ridiculous because no one's going to have exact change. You know, the ratio is off. So here they were charging people 12% to exchange money in order to pay the tax. So you're getting taxed to pay your taxes. Does our country do that? I don't know, right? Probably. So, so this entire system that was happening within the temple during the time when people of, the people of God should be focusing on the incredible grace and work of God freeing their people from Egypt into the promised land is now muddled with all these different rituals, all these different commercialized systems and, and procedures that they had to go through. And so for Jesus, he enters into his father's house. He sees that the very people that his father has saved have turned a, a moment of celebration and worship into just a human procedure ritual where just money is being exchanged and things are being done out of duty and not out of worship. And it creates, it causes within his heart a deep righteous anger towards what the people of God have turned his father's house into. So he quotes two Old Testament passages and he says, you have turned what is to be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. You know, and, and for a den of robbers, it's not that, you know, a den of robbers, no illegal activity occurs inside the den of robbers, right? The den of robbers is the sanctuary for robbers. It's the place where you go to feel safe after your illegal activities. And he's saying this house of God, the temple of the Lord, has now become a sanctuary for people who are profiting off of, you know, poor people, profiting off of religion and profiting off the name of God the Father. And so he fashions a whip, possibly from his belt. Um, you know, the, the Passover festival was such a big thing that people were not allowed to bring weapons inside. It was like going to the airport today, right? They, he fashioned a whip from his belt, uh, drove the people out, overturned money tables, and, it, and it's just a, an incredible sight to behold. The fact that Jesus, one single person, will go into the very temple of God during the most holy festival for the Jewish people and that he would up, upend and create a riot and, and, and create such a scene. That's how angry he was. And I think for us, we have to be very kind of um, uh, honest with ourselves that perhaps this passage and this story is not just kind of a, a, a warning for us, but that we have to audit our hearts and realize that this is something that is very prevalent in our own lives. It's very prevalent throughout churches all across the world that we have turned the house of prayer into a den of robbers. That just like the people of Israel were just going through the motions and were not truly worshiping and not truly thinking about what God has done for them, but instead just out of habit and, and out of you know, the fact that we've been doing this for many, many years for some people, maybe all your lives for others, and we come into God's house without the proper reverence and, and, and a proper heart of worship, but instead we just go with the motion. Now, I, I try to imagine myself in the situation um, traveling with my wife and three kids to Jerusalem to a crowded place that I, would, I don't even want to be around people and it's, you know, all these animals. Like, I just want to get the, go in and get out as fast as possible. There would be no aspect of worship in my heart at that time. And then I thought about it. I was like, sometimes I, you know, we, we prepare our, for Sundays in the same way. We're in a rush. 
We're not really thinking about how God has really given us the privilege to come into his presence. Even when we talk about, hey, this is the call to worship, prepare your heart for worship, many of us, those are just words that go in one ear and out the other. It's just a time for us to close our eyes. And I ask myself, if Jesus were here today, would he overthrow this pulpit and drive me out? Would he do that to, to us? And so one of the things that I think is very important for us as we think about this is really examining our own selves, examining our own hearts, examining our own church. Where, where, where are we in this story? Are we the money changers? Are we the religious leaders? Or are we the blind and the deaf that come to Jesus after he overturns the tables? Are we the young children that come and praise him, Hosanna, the son of David is here? Now, one of the things that I think is uh, really important for me to share is just, uh, you know, kind of talking about my burnout journey. You know, um, I am thankful that I had the space to be able to even mention my burnout uh, from the pulpit and even in smaller settings. And I, I was never once made to feel ashamed of my burnout or, or even kind of like feel guilty about it. Uh, most of all, I, I think, you know, the leadership, especially the church, was really able to embrace me through it, and the staff was really able to embrace me through it, uh, especially as I was operating at a very lower capacity. Uh, and the only reason why I can say that I'm still standing here today and even still in ministry is because of the fact that, you know, it was so well-received and so well-supported. Now, I've never really got to share my reflections on my uh, burnout because it was something that I was going through in real time. But for the sake of the church, and especially for those that might be wondering uh, or maybe worried about me, uh, I, I did want to give an update. Uh, and especially now, as I was thinking about this passage and the fact that um, we really have to kind of examine our hearts, I thought this would be a good place for me to even just share some of my thoughts. So first of all, I want to start off by saying that I'm in a much better place now. And it was really weird. It almost seems like it happened overnight. But just like this past week, I was like, dude, I, I feel a lot better. Now, obviously, it's not something that happened overnight. It was something that uh, was going through uh, the healing process through a lot of reflection, a lot of introspection, but um, definitely feel in a much better place. Uh, but, you know, just to be able to stand here uh, and, and kind of enter into the seat, my season of sabbatical in a much healthier place is truly a miracle, and it's truly something where uh, it's filled with grace. Now, I know that uh, for some of you, the thought of me sharing about uh, my, this part of my journey uh, might have made you feel awkward or may, maybe even made you feel like not to know how to respond. Um, but I think for every single one of you guys that have prayed for me, uh, it was really, uh, really worked. You know, I really felt it. But I think what's more important is this idea of like, well, what triggered this? You know, what, what, what was the reason behind this? You know, and I think in the beginning, it always felt like, well, maybe it was just something like, this is something negative that's happening in my life. But the more I thought about it, I realized that this is really the invitation of the Spirit of God to really think about the meaning and purpose of my calling as a pastor, and even just my calling as, as a member of the body of the church. So in my 20s and 30s, the main emphasis of my life was really on making a mark in the world. And for you, some of you that are in your 20s and 30s, um, that might really still be the case. Right? We want to make a mark on the world. We want to do something great. We want to achieve something that we feel is meaningful and, and, and awesome. And, and, if it's, and it brings glory to God, amen. And so the reason why I believe that uh, I came to the Bay Area to plant the church, not only because I was being obedient to God's calling where I felt like God was calling me here, but also because I wanted to make a mark in the world. Right? I wanted to do something great for God. And if I had to plant a church, might as well, you know, because church plants really fail, 
why not just go to the, the hardest place to plant a church, right? So here we came to the Bay Area. And for the first year, year and a half, it almost felt like it wasn't going to launch, but it was okay because no one expected me to succeed anyways, right? But then, you know, God moved, the Spirit moved, and, and our church was just thriving at a very young age. So right before the pandemic, we were probably at our biggest. We were having two services, maybe you know, 250 adults, a lot of kids were being born. At a certain point, we had like 20, 30 Stanford students coming. We don't even know how they started coming, you know? But they're all graduating now. That's why they're not here, which is crazy. <laughs> Pandemic really stole like four years of our life, right? Um, and, and, you know, and then 2020 was coming around the corner. You know, I was going to turn 40 in 2020. I had, you know, plans to, to go on, you know, like this awesome guy trip with my other friend that was turning 40. And then, you know, I also had this like cheesy, corny idea like, oh, the, you know, 2020 vision for the church, you know, and we're going to have all these initiatives and all this kind of stuff, and the pandemic hit, and then, you know, everything just kind of slowed down, right? And I didn't realize this, but during this time, and then especially after we came back, uh, I started really having this question within my heart, and, and, and I didn't know this at the time, but reflecting back, I, I see what it was now, it was this idea of like, well, what is the purpose and what is the meaning of all this? Like, we can have two services. We can have a church filled with 300, 400, 500 people. But what does it all mean if in the depths of our hearts, all we're doing is just going through the motions and not truly worshiping God? And if the only thing that really matters is our comfort, how well we do in our careers, how well our kids grow up, and then we just kind of go with the flow and just kind of stay under the radar and, and not really have a true relationship with God, but think that we do. What is the point of all that? And I thought to myself, what's the point of me thinking that I'm being successful or that I have influence or that I've achieved something great when in reality I'm just nothing better than the religious leaders who are constantly perpetuating this vicious cycle of religious people thinking that they are being good when in reality we are just stuck in the, the, the matrix of just going with the flow and following the religious cultural norms that we've grown up with. And so this existential crisis, this questioning of God, this feeling of like, is my life meaningless, was really kind of the beginning of it all. So the trigger for me was this idea of, of being, feeling purposeless, thinking what is the point of all of this? Uh, you know, also coupled with the fact that you know, my son was going through a medical condition and then just the social anxiety of being isolated, but then all of a sudden now we have to like be around people. You know, just the, 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 the turmoil that our culture was going through. And, and I realized it was just the cycle of preparing a worship service that is consumable by the majority, slightly challenging, but not really offensive in the gospel way. Speaking to our emotions, but never to our heart. Worshiping with our lips, but never in the spirit and truth and filling our calendars with religious rituals and programs and believing that that was a worthy substitute for a true relationship with God. And I thought, what is, what is the point then? Now, I want to show you this video that I found online uh, to make a point. Hopefully it shows. Okay, I don't think the sound works. The, the video was kind of explaining what happens to these ants. But um, these ants, all ants are blind, right? And, and, and they follow each other by uh, following the scent of the pheromones. And what often happens or sometimes happens is that uh, once one ant 
kind of gets uh, looped in a circle, they all start following each other in this circle, and it's called the spiral of death. And once they get caught in that circle, what, these, what happens to these ants is that they keep walking and walking and walking, and they die of exhaustion, and they just die. The only way for these ants to get out of this spiral of death is that someone has to come and gently, maybe even forcefully, kind of spread them out so that they'll be able to get back on course. Now, the more I thought about this, I, we can stop the video now. You guys get it, right? It's kind of weird, weird phenomena. If you ever see ants like that, be their savior. You know, just, just kind of, you know, shoo them away. And, and the only way for us to kind of really think about this is that when Jesus entered into the temple, what he saw was this image. He saw the very children of God stuck in this spiral of death, just walking around in circles, thinking that they're going the right way, thinking that their path was where God was directing them, when in reality they were caught in a perpetual cycle of just being stuck in the same place. So what does Jesus do? He comes with power. He drives away the money changers and the people selling these sacrificial animals to bring to attention to the very people that they have lost the very purpose and meaning of why they come to celebrate the Passover, why they come into the presence of the God to the temple. Now, one of the things that I think is really important for us, and even for me, is um, in the very next passage, uh, Jesus, he talks about the fig tree, and he says this. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, it, the, the reason why Jesus and the, uh, Mar Matthew writes this passage right after the temple encounter is that the, the story of the fig tree is an analogy of what's going on in the temple. Just like the fig tree is not bearing any fruit, the people of God in the temple are not bearing any fruit. And when he says to the fig tree and, and curses it and withers and dies, uh, in, in order for the temple to re be restored to what its main purpose is, what it exists now has to die. And then he gives a very practical explanation. He says, you must have faith. If you have faith enough to say to this mountain, move from here to the sea, it will be done so. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, oftentimes, you know, growing up, I've, I've heard of this passage. I've read the passage about, you know, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell the mountain to move from here to there and it will do so. And it was always in the context where if I felt that there was some sort of obstacle or some sort of difficulty in my life, that I can ask God and that he would be able to remove, remove that obstacle. And I think many of us uh, operate in that way. And that's not completely wrong. Uh, there, there might be physical ailments, there might be illnesses in the home, there might be re relational difficulties at work or in, in the home. You might even have difficulties with your careers or looking for a job, and you might be deep in prayer saying, God, help me to find a new job, or God, help me to restore this relationship. God, help me take this uh, ailment away from me. And, and, and we might see that as our mountain. 
But when you're caught in this vicious cycle, oftentimes the mountain that God is referring to or the mountain that we must be very careful to, uh, to pinpoint and define is not the mountains out external and outside of us, but really the mountain that's lodged in the depths of our, of our heart. And we pray, God, move the mountain and throw it into the sea. It's oftentimes this, this, the, the, the hardness of our heart of stone and praying that God would turn into a heart of flesh. That the obstacle that hinders us from truly coming to him in, in, in true and reverent worship is not the external things outside of us, but often our own sin and our own stubbornness and our own difficulties so that we cannot even see God. So when we pray in faith to move mountains, I believe first and foremost, it's God awakening our dead hearts to be alive in him. That he would be able to breathe life into a valley of dry bones. So that we would have this, the, the heart to be able to see him for who he is and what he has done. Now Jesus, as he encountered the people, uh, we see, again, just kind of their reaction to this. And I think their reaction is very important for us to think about some practical applications. So when we think about the fulfillment of God's temple, uh, it really is made possible because of Jesus Christ, the ultimate temple. But now we are called the temple of God as the Spirit resides in us. So how do we fulfill this temple? Uh, I'm going to give five practical or four practical examples and four practical applications. Number one... It, we have to commit to put Christ at the center of our worship. To put Jesus at the center of our worship. What does that look like? Right now, I don't want to question, I, I believe that the people in, in the Old Testament times, in Jesus' time with the temple, it's not like their structure wasn't wrong. Their intentions were good. They, wanna, they were following the laws of the Old Testament to make sure that sacrifices were offered in a proper way that the temple tax was collected for the good of the organization. Uh, they, they had everything, you know, according to the design that was followed uh, in the Old Testament and, and how the temple was built and the religious system was all set up correctly. What was missing was their attitude and their heart. That they were entering into this festival and entering into the temple purely out of ritualistic duty and not out of reverence and relationship for a God who saved them from slavery into life. I believe that each and every single one of us, especially if you are a believer today, we have to commit to putting Jesus at the very center of our worship. What does that mean? It means that when we come in here, we have to think less of us and more of the God who has saved us. Less of our comforts or less of, our, uh, of, of, of what we want to see or less of what, what we feel is needed and more of, what God, of who God is and worshiping him for what he has done. Next, we have to have a commitment to combat the commercialization of religion and focus on our relationship with God. One of the things that is uh, very prevalent is the fact that when I see churches that are struggling or dividing, um, most divisions within church is not because of a lack of worship. Meaning, I mean, there probably is a lack of worship, but that's not the reason why they say we're splitting. Or that's not the reason why they say they're leaving. That's not, or that's not the way, reason why they're saying we're no longer going to come. Oftentimes, the reason why there's uh, dysfunction and division within the church is because of money, programming, or organizational differences. 
I mean, the very the fact that if you if we have more opinions and you are more vocal about the business of the church as an organization, but have nothing to say about the state of the worship, the lack of worship, it probably means that you are more about the business and commercialization of religion than an actual relationship with God. If the thing that upsets you most is about finances and, and, and how money is spent or how money is given or, or you know, just, and, and you care nothing about the Bible or worship or, you know, the, the relationships with, with the people around you and God, then perhaps you're most likely like the religious leaders who are more about the profitability of an organization and less about a relationship with God. I mean, think about it. How many church, and if you've grown up in the church, you might have witnessed this. How many business meetings or church meetings or, 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 uh, uh, or conversations or, or even just the, uh, the fighting has occurred because someone's like, no, we need to worship God more. And someone else is like, we, no, we don't want to. No one does that. They go, hey, how come this money is spent here? Or how come we're going to this direction? We're, we are, we're all guilty of that. We have turned the Father's house of prayer into a den of robbers while masquerading as holy and pious. And this should absolutely anger us because it angers Jesus. So we need to commit to returning to the very purpose of why we gather, to have a deep and intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it's, I'm not saying it's easy. But I think it's something that we have to constantly remind ourselves of. Third, we must be committed to focus on the needs of those outside the walls of the church and those that are outside the community of believers. One of the very interesting things about this story that we don't really recognize and see is that what's happening within the temple, all the money changing and all the selling of animals, it happened in the Gentile court of the temple of God. So the way that the temple was situated, there's, you know, the most holy place, the holy place. There's kind of like the, the place where only Jewish men could enter. There's a place where only Jewish men and women can enter. And then outside in the courts is called the Gentile court where those that are not Jewish or those that are God seekers or curious could enter and see what is going on here in the temple of God. But this temple of God was filled with what? Jewish people exchanging money, buying sacrifices. There was no room for the needy, the poor, and the Gentiles to enter. Everything that was meant to be a, a, a light and a witness to the rest of the world turned in on itself and became inward focused and only about them. Now, what happened immediately after Jesus drove all the money changers and the, and the sellers out? It says in the passage that we read that the lame and the, and, and the blind came seeking healing. What Jesus was able to do by turning over everything that was going on inside is that he now made room for those that are seeking Jesus to enter and meet him and to be healed by him. Now, I don't know if there's a solution to this. And if you are an unbeliever or if you are new to this whole Christianity or church um, the reality is, is that you enter into any church setting, not just ours, and you will feel like you are not included. You will feel like an outsider. And that is not your fault. That is ours. Because we have turned church into a place and a culture where it's comfortable for us and really difficult for people to find and learn about Jesus. 
And I think we have to be committed to the fact that we as Christians need to learn to make ourselves a little bit more uncomfortable so that those that are seeking Christ may feel like there's no hindrances or less hindrances to find out who Jesus is. Next, our commitment needs to be towards repentance. It needs to be towards repentance. Now, what I mean by that is this. Jesus, he dries out the money changers. He dries out the people selling, right? And this is hurting the bottom line of the religious leaders. But this was an opportunity for them to repent and to think about the fact that they have turned the house of God into a den of robbers. But instead, what is it that they say? It says that they were indignant at Jesus, that they were angry at him, that they approached him and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear what they, these are saying? Now, that's a very interesting and funny statement to say, right? Because not only are the blind and the lame coming into Jesus, into the temple and being healed by them, it says that infants and children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Here are children who are now genuinely worshiping Jesus, having a genuine relationship with God. And what is the response of the religious leaders? Not repentance, but anger. Now, imagine with me here. Let's say I'm here, and then, um, by the way, there was a pastor in Colorado who sold fake cryptocurrency to his congregation. Genius, right? Now, let's say I'm up here, and I'm like, hey, guys, we got a new, we got a new cryptocurrency, like J-Coin. You know, I'm like, I'm like selling it to you guys, right? And you guys are all into it. You're like, yeah, this is awesome. And then, and then Jesus comes and then just kind of overturns the tables, and he rebukes us. And then all the children and students come because they hear that Jesus is here. And they enter, and they start worshiping, and they start calling out his name, and they start singing songs. What would your response be as a parent if you saw your children do that? Absolute joy, right? And let's say, I will see my own children coming in here and they're worshiping. And then what if my response was anger? And I look to Jesus and say, do you hear what they're saying? No repentance at all, right? Absolutely no repentance. And so when we're thinking about entering into the presence of God on Sundays, and we're able to introspectively just really audit the condition of our heart. The fact that we have turned our relationship with God into rituals. That we are more concerned about the, the earthly money and business of organizations. And not really about the worshiping of God. We must come in repentance to him. And Jesus quotes Old Testament. He says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies... You have prepared praise. We must become childlike in our attitude and our worship. Because in, in, in this world, we are so bombarded with our own desire to only think about ourselves. So I end you with this. Jesus is now the ultimate temple. He's the, fulfillment of the, the ultimate fulfillment of the temple of God. He tells the Jewish people and the religious leaders tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. Now, we are not required to make pilgrimages to an earthly temple, 
because Jesus is the ultimate temple. And as his children, we are also the temple of God as the spirit resides in us. The goal is worship and witness, to worship God and to witness to his great uh, faithfulness and his greatness to the people who don't know him. Let's pray.